you're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. Welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Moutier, and I'm here today with Martina Lochenko, Operating Partner at Costanoa Ventures. How are you doing today, Martina? I am fantastic. Thank you very much for coming today. So the topic is how to market an early stage startup, which is a, which is a great topic for us to discuss. That's probably representing around 30% of our business. So I'm very excited to get uh, to get your views, opinions, stories on, 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 on what you've been witnessing through your experience. But, but before we go into that conversation, Martina, could you please introduce yourself to our audience and, and tell us more about your company, Costanova Ventures? So I'm an operating partner at Costanova Ventures. We focus on early stage, so seed and series A investing, largely in B2B SaaS, but in categories like data and cybersecurity infrastructure and vertical SaaS applications like computer vision cameras for aqua farming. So really interesting ways of rethinking how business gets done. Right. That's a wide range of companies that you are helping. That's why that's very interesting. It is a really wide range. It, may, it keeps me on my toes. It's very intellectually challenging, but it also gives me a really broad lens through which to understand at the early stage with so much diversity in our portfolio, what yeah. really separates those that are accelerating and, and, and getting to market better and faster from those that I would say are more, say, traditional and and not quite accelerating as quickly per the title of your podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. So so would you say that the the most disruptive or, or the most disruptive a company is the better it is to to get to market? No, I would say the single most important thing right now is to have an intersection of thoughtful ways of disrupting an industry, not necessarily the most disruptive technology. It's the most thoughtful approach that can feel differentiated and then to really go to market in a differentiated way. That is different if you have a highly vertical market. So we have a, a company that basically is around tracking like how, how things change in earth movement areas. So if you're a mine, if you are you're building out an enormous site and you have to move trucks and trucks of dirt, so that is the construction industry, as an example, is one that has been underutilizing technology because they kind of have their ways of doing things. And so they said, like, okay, for this particular market, here's how to right-size the technology. They actually went from something that was extremely disrupted and used drones to something that was just basic GPS that you could slap on a truck. And that's way yeah. easier for that industry to adopt. And they've been very successful because they've leaned into how that industry works. So it's not about being the most disruptive, it's understanding that industry, what its needs are, and then finding clever ways to apply that technology. Now, the flip side of that is the Aquabyte, which is a company I referenced earlier, where they are being very disruptive in the Norwegian um, sea farm, or aqua farming industry. Instead of you putting in a net and sampling 10 fish and deciding how what your sea life count is based on that, they're actually, they can account for all 200,000 fish in a pen because they're using cameras to do all of that capture, that data capture. And so they're able to get much better data about life and, and what's happening inside a particular pen because they're using technology. So there it's extremely disruptive and very new and very novel, but very appropriate for their particular industries. And then I put yeah. the layer on top of that that's so crucial then 
is to be very, very thoughtful about how you're going to market. And I would say this is the step that most technology companies aren't as good at, and it's absolutely crucial to nail. Of course. Well, that's kind of leading me to my to my next question. So we, we recently came across one of your articles where you outlined the key tools and metrics that early stage startups should adopt from a marketing perspective. So could you please share with our audience the four phases of this frame, framework and where the marketing focus should be on each of them? You bet. So the four stages I identified were Phase one, which is founder selling, which is basically you are trying to figure out, like this is basically the founder is everything, like your sales, your marketing. And the key thing that you're trying to understand and identify there is what does this market need? What are the problems that I can solve? And what are the right ways to go to this market? And Mm -hmm. it's really important that the founding team get this signal directly because that impacts the product that gets built. You can do more, I'd say, like lightweight customer discovery work that really makes sure that you build the right solution that can be compelling. And then when you sort of have a sense of what you think it is, that leads to the next phase, which is product market fit validation. And I don't call it product market fit because you kind of have to validate whether or not you've got it. And this is a step where you have some MVP or MVP ideas out in market and you're getting some validation on whether or not it is actually going to be adopted by the market. And this is likewise the place where I would say people, they look for, for validation on their ideas and they're not still in that sensing mode of, gee, people are saying that it's good and that they like it, but they're not saying, oh my God, I need to have it tomorrow. And in yeah, this yeah. stage, that's what you want. You want something like, how can I, can I buy this like right now? If people are saying like, yeah, that would be useful, which is what a lot of people say, because they're all trying to be nice. <laughs> people mm-hmm. are like, oh yeah, people said it would be really useful. That's not product market fit. Like people feel like, oh my God, my life will be changed if this, if I had this. You really want that level of pull. And the reason why I set the bar so high is because there are 20 other people with 20 other ideas that are coming at these same folks saying like, oh, I have something else that's going to be useful for you. And so the, the fundamental shift that's happened in the tech industry that a lot of people kind of haven't quite adjusted to is how massively competitive it is for anyone's mind share. And we all think like, oh, what I'm doing is unique. And like that yeah. might be true, but so are 10 other things. They are unique and it's kind of the intersection of who you're talking to, what their needs are and how you position it and frame it so that they feel like, oh, I have to have this. So that phase two is that product market fit validation. And then phase three is the go-to-market fit validation. And I would say increasingly in B2B, these are a little hand in glove. They're not necessarily sequential. Most people think like, oh, I get product market fit, and then I figure out go-to-market fit. But in B2B in particular, you kind of have to figure out go-to-market fit as you're figuring out product market fit, because sometimes it's who you're talking to that shapes whether or not the product will be adopted. So an example here is a team that I just, just met with last week, and they had three different target audiences identified. And I said, okay, of those three, so one was like a frontline developer, the second was engineering leader, and the third was someone in security. And I said, okay, of those, in those three conversations, which was the person that said like, oh, I wish I had this today? And they're like, well, it's the developer, the frontline developer, because the engineering manager basically needs to make a decision, they have some budget things that they need to consider, like everybody else had other things that they were thinking, whereas the developers okay. are like, oh yeah, I like this, I want to use it right now. I'm like, that's your first market. So that is 
go-to-market fit and an early stage B2B startup, sometimes that is as important, if not more important, because once you make that decision saying, that's the market that can adopt this quickly, you might build the product differently. And you certainly will message it differently. So something that we identified in working together was all their messaging was oriented around that security buyer. When they realized the one that would move the market fastest was the frontline developer, that's naturally going to change what they're going to say and how they're going to say it. And then that fourth phase was the scaling phase, which is when after you figured out all those other things that work, that's when you can add gas to the fire. Um, yeah. And that's, I would say that people try to get to scaling too quickly, generally speaking. They're like, oh, we got a little something that works, so let's build a pipeline and let's hire salespeople. You really have to make sure that that is something that when you do that, it's you're, you're going to the race. Absolutely. It's actually one of the one of the statements in your article where you mentioned it is it's tempting is to move right to turn on demon gen and feel like they are doing marketing. So basically, as you said, putting the foot on the gas. Okay, we found something that works. Let's 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 put off investment and create lots of leads. Um, and 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 particularly with the pressure from VCs, the the, the, the market as it is, because you've got to get out. If not, you're going to get catched by the competition and all that. So it's really it's, you need to be quick be successful and, and adapt quickly. But why, why do you think it's not the right things to do to just, you know, turn on the dimension? What I have observed, and again, this is mostly an early stage, is people look at early signal and they just do turn, they try to quote unquote, turn on demand and just a little bit too early. So you mm-hmm. can actually get to a million in revenue, sometimes fairly quickly. And then the next million and the million after that is really, really hard work. Because it's kind of like those early adopters, those friends, those friendlies are like, oh, sure. And so you think you have signal that the market is going to adopt this. And you haven't actually diagnosed either product market fit or go-to-market fit very well. And the way I like to think about it is the before you kind of just add fuel to the fire, you need to make sure that you have diagnosed demand. And that means... Who are we talking to? What are the things that we need to say that actually compel them and feel a sense of urgency? And what are the things that help keep our sales cycle tight and repeatable? So you can't actually get to scaling in that real demand gen that everybody like, oh, yeah, we've got a pipeline and just whoop, turn it on. You can't get there unless you're pretty sure that your process is repeatable. And the real test for that is can you take an average sales rep, so not someone that is like spectacular and able to do all the work yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time. I know what you mean. Give them an extremely well-defined process and and do your thing and, and have it yield success and, and do that in less than six months. So the average time that it takes to onboard a B2B rep these days is, is usually less than six months. It's around the four and a half to six months range. And so you yeah. have to make sure, like the only way that that works <laughs> is if the process that you have in place for that rep enables them to be successful and onboard in that time frame so that they can actually contribute and Absolutely. reach their quota goal. Because then they're not motivated either. Like, oh, this is really hard. And, and everybody starts, you see this development at everyone's oh, absolutely. everybody else. <laughs> yeah. And, and you also have the thing of, I know better. I used to look in my previous company, which is extremely annoying. You know, we, we it's not, it's, it can be good sometimes, but we, we do exactly the same. So we believe that scalability is the fruit of developing a, a strong process flow where you've got conversion rate from one phase to the other phase, okay? You will drop some. And I think it's much exactly the same when it comes to uh, when it's come to building up. And, and what we'd like to do, we'd like to get a, a new sales rep, no matter how junior or senior they are, 
to come into a process where we've already built some sort of a foundation of what that flow process should look like. And we've got already some idea of what the conversion between each phase should so Basically, if we've got a demonstrable, something that we can explain, a process and saying, well, this is the way it works. And if you, this is the reason why you are failing and this is what you should change, at this stage, here are the reasons. But basically, almost giving them like a, an explanation of what is expected from them to do with the, the full step-by-step approach, which ultimately some of them don't like because they feel that they are being watched, but is ultimately very important if you just want to make sure that you've got a service team where you don't have just one person succeeding why, but having a team of five, six, ten that are all successful. So we, we do exactly the same, building right. up the, the, and, the scalable sales process. And just to add that, you'd asked a question about sort of like the pressure that you feel from VCs. What happens is as you succeed, the reason why there's so much pressure from VCs is they say like, okay, these guys have got it, figured it out. And so yeah. the expectation as you're growing is, is that you've figured it out. And if you sort of accidentally and luckily stumbled upon the success that you have today, then it, you can't actually just add fuel to that fire. That's where you get this tension where there's intense pressure to grow and these expectations and the, the inside the company are like, well, we're a mess. Why are they expecting us to grow? Like, that's unreasonable. And the, the, the backers are kind of like, well, you have these great growth rates. And they didn't realize these, that there were these supernatural acts that actually got them there. And so that's yeah. why from, on the go-to-market side, for sales and marketing to really be like lockstep and just to like, yeah, we're ready and we actually know what it takes to grow and, and meet those expectations. So speaking about VCs and pressure, but I don't think it's just VCs. It's also business owners, co-founders, all the people who start a business. Everybody is patient. You know, nowadays, nobody wants to want to wait. We're building up a culture of impatience. But to that extent, and, and, and particularly when you are starting with, with a startup where you've got limited budget, limited resources, do you give advice or would you have any advice to our audience as to what the key KPIs that they should look at should be or how do they evaluate that they are doing the right things? Well, how, how do you go about that? I don't think there's any single KPI and you just have to look at your overall business holistically. I yeah. say the, the healthiest ones that I've seen are ones that have business goals that are well articulated. They have a vision but then they have business goals that are well articulated that the entire company can work towards. So that OKRs or any of the key metrics that get tracked are actually shared across functions. Because Mm -hmm. what I've observed is if like marketing has their goals, sales has their goals, which they need to have their own functional goals, but they all have to align and create alignment so that the whole company is working towards those business goals. So that's when I've seen, business goals that the entire, all the functional organizations underneath can align themselves toward and move towards lockstep. I'd say that is when I've seen things most successful. But in terms of basic KPIs and through that world of, of, of impatience, what are some important things? A lot of it is just consistency. Can, yeah. can you perform consistently? So it's not like, hey, we have these KPIs and we're meeting those KPIs. It's sort of like, are, are you consistent in how you perform? One that I actually really like is, is are your problems new every quarter? If you could keep going back to like, there's one company that I've worked with where every other board meeting, we're like, is it a little groundhog day? <laughs> because that means that that improvement's not actually happening. And what you want to have is every board meeting, people are like, well, they killed that last problem now. They've moved on to the next because that means that it's learning, it's growing. And 
there will always be problems and always be challenges and issues. And the, and it's just like, how do you overcome them and how do you move through them? So that what's a good metric about like, is the right amount of impatience or urgency? I don't think there's something that helps you calibrate around that other than I don't think it's new, this like notion of impatience. I was actually just thinking about that this morning when I started my career at Microsoft. This is when it was a public company and this was in the early 90s. And every single day we felt this incredible sense of urgency. And it wasn't that there was this impatience. It was just like there, there's in technology always there seems to be this incredible opportunity that's in front of you that everybody wants to run toward. And yeah. that's just this industry. And it has been the entire, my entire career in it has been like that. So I'm always shocked when someone doesn't have the like, you know, pee in their pants sense of urgency. I'm like, don't you feel the sense of urgency? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm that's not there just because it seems endemic to the, it has been my entire career. So I would say that doesn't feel new. It's, I think, one of the really exciting parts of technology and why it keeps changing and why it's so exciting as an industry to be in. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. and. And from my perspective, I think adaptability is characteristic because when you work for a startup and you, you, there is particularly if you've got, if you bring a new product to the market and it happens to us quite often that we sit down with clients and they tell us about their value proposition and we're like, okay, well, this is great. That's a me, 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 me. That you are the first at doing that. You are the first to do that sort of thing. You are quicker than this one. Great. It's all about you. Fantastic. Problem is no one knows you. So, we try to explain to them that it's really about the people that they are targeting, what's happening in their life. Would that solve a pain that is big enough? Okay, Is it a stone in their shoe? And is that stone big enough so they actually want to take off their shoe and do something about it? Or can they carry on walking with the shoe that they've got in, with the stone that they've got in their shoe? Adaptability yeah. is really important. And, and I think it's about trying and being honest with, with yourself and if you try something that is not working, but at least you try it, you're not sitting there waiting for things to happen. If it's not working, knock it on the head. And, and as you said, if you find a formula that is working, oh, just a picture of it, stop there, everybody, everybody freeze, and let's try to repeat it. Let's look at it. What was working? Why was it working? Can we repeat that? And and, and that's often something that's missing from our clients. We try, try, try the same ID when, when actually, you know, Trying different venues, having lots of macro campaign would be would be a bit more successful. But that's kind of leading me to, to another question around, you know, what do you think are the main downfalls that early stage startups need to avoid from a marketing perspective? I would say right, you identified one of them, which is not being dynamic in how you adjust what you're doing. Like you find something that works and kind of like, okay, well, we'll just kind of stick with this. I always recommend that like 25% of your team's energy always be spent on something new that you haven't tried before. So that you're always trying to push an edge and discover something that you might not know that might be even better than something that you're already doing. So it's more of that discovery mindset, kind of very similar to product where you have to be throwing as many ideas away as you're keeping if you're truly exploring the landscape of possibility. And typically what sure. I see happen is they're kind of like, oh, well, these things worked well enough. And so we're going to stick with them and double down with them. And so mm -hmm. definitely I'd yep. say at the, it can feel safe, which is understandable. <laughs> but Absolutely. you, so I'd say that's one thing, which is like failing to continue to kind of push an edge and find other things that are going to work for you. And I would say the other is, is uh, kind of more of that cross-functional alignment. Like 
the marketing function, like you're like, okay, we got to do this and we have to create our pipeline. But your the marketing function's capacity to be effective is very, very dependent on sales and their ability to like process that pipeline and with account-based marketing and all these other things that are really, especially as it relates to B2B, so much of the focus of, of, of a lot of thought of where things are going and how things work better, making sure that you're totally lockstep with sales and not just like, oh yeah, we're running these campaigns for sales. It's sort of like we're running them alongside sales and they yeah. just feel like they can be successful without it. So that it really feels like a true partnership. I'd say that's a, a watch point that I think people think that they're doing because they're talking with sales and talking with sales and being actually aligned with sales and doing things together in market are different. Absolutely. And my last question to you is 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 around the the skill set and we always hear particularly when we we well, even when I meet with CEO I think there is people who are the most seasoned would tell you hey I'm the sort of guy that will take a company from 0 to 50 million and then I need to pass on to someone else or I'm going to take a company from 50 to 150 etc cetera, etc cetera. do you think it's similar for marketing do you think there is a specific breed of marketer that are more are better suited for for working with startups and and then after a certain stage you should probably go to the next one not do well in a large organization. Do you think that, that applies to, to, to marketing as, as a company grow? I do think that's generally true for most functions where it, it's truly the extraordinary individual that can scale, scale from zero to wherever the company winds up being. That is like one in, I don't know what the number is, but it's really just <laughs> Not rare yeah. and extraordinary. And because the skill set is really different. So on the sales side, uh, uh, Bob Tinker refers to it as the Davy Crockett rabbit, someone that can make stuff up on the fly and, mm-hmm. and really just shuck and jive with what they're interacting with at the market because it's not well-defined. Now, that person yeah. is going to be terrible when you're scaling and you need it to be more predictable. Similarly with marketing at the early stages, this is someone that needs to be very hands-on that is getting that direct signal from sales, from the customer and processing it and doing things hands-on and trying things and, and just being right in the thick of it and that person sometimes doesn't necessarily scale well because they are so hands-on and they're and because they kind of have fingers in a whole lot of pots as the functions are growing and there's there starts to be a little bit more separation discipline and process sometimes that person because they are so shucking and grooving doesn't work as effectively in a more scaled organization where you need a little bit more process and there's more organizational management than there is actual like just doing of your function so i definitely yeah. think that it's true in marketing, uh, for a CEO, in sales, and sometimes also with product. Like I, I think generally there is not, I don't see enough real true customer discovery work happening, even in early stage startups, which is surprising to say. But a lot of it is like, oh, we got to rush and get something out to market. And so there's a lot of validation versus discovery, which are two different. So it is, it's, there are different skill sets. There are those extraordinary unicorns, but for like 99% of the world out there, it's kind of like, Find the right person for right now, and that is the right call, like 99.9% of the time. Right, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your insight, Martina. Um, I, I really appreciate the, the, the fact that you took the time to, to be with me today and, and have that conversation. It's definitely very interesting, and um, lots of experience came through the conversation. I always loved a few stories, and, and what you shared with us was uh, was pretty good. Um, if, if anyone wants to connect with you and learn more about your company or, or just continue that conversation offline, what would be the best way to get in touch with you, Martina? 
I'd say please connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know that you listen to the podcast so I know because I only like to connect with people that like have a reason for connecting with yeah, me. So just like, yeah, I heard you on the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, people are like, can I be part of your network? I'm like, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. But if you just heard, if you heard this and listened to it and you found it interesting, uh, connect with me or follow me on LinkedIn. That's a great way to reach me. That's great. Well, it was fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank you again for your time, Martina. Thank you guys so much. Operatics has redefined the meaning of revenue generation for technology companies worldwide. While the traditional concepts of building and managing inside sales teams in-house has existed for many years, companies are struggling with a lack of focus, agility, and scale required in today's fast and complex world of enterprise technology sales. See how Operatics can help your company accelerate pipeline at operatics.net. You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.